Welcome to Experience This, where you'll find inspiring examples of customer experience, great stories of customer service, and tips on how to make your customers love you even more. Always upbeat and definitely entertaining, customer retention expert Joey Coleman and social media expert Dan Gingis serve as your hosts for a weekly dose of positive customer experience. So hold on to your headphones. It's time to experience this. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to The Experience This Show. This is Jay Baer, founder of Convince and Convert. And before we get to this week's episode, want to remind you of one of our show sponsors, Fable, F-A-B-L dot C-O, F-A-B-L dot C-O. Fable's the Swiss army knife for content creators. It's a cloud-based marketing platform that provides storytellers with a really easy-to-use collaborative and creative tool so you can create, distribute content. Whether you're a big company or a new scaling startup, Fable is a really immersive elegant platform that drives engagement, delivers customers to your doorstep. It's essentially a content studio in a box. It's got a platform, it's got production, it's got distribution. It's all in there together. In fact, I use Fable for my own website, jbear.com. Love those guys. Super easy to use. If you want to create content, you want to create stunning content, you want to provide an amazing experience for your content consumers, Fable can help you. F-A-B-L dot C-O. Give it a look. Thanks so much. And here's this week's Experience This. Get ready for another episode of the Experience This Show. Join us as we discuss one company's brilliant response to a self-inflicted grammar mistake, why successful brands focus on users rather than buyers, and some love it, can't stand it from our brilliant listeners. Grammar. User. Listener. Oh, my. We love telling stories and sharing key insights you can implement or avoid based on our experiences. Can you believe that this just happened? So, Joey, I we've talked about many times on this show that I'm a bit of a Twitter fan and you're less so. I, I, think, it's fair. I think that's fair. <laughs> One of the things that happens quite a bit is people send me stories or you know things that they've seen in terms of customer service or customer experience. And within a matter of minutes recently, two different people shared really funny grammar and spelling stories with me on Twitter. And so I, I liked them so much, I thought that I'd like to share them with our audience. So the first was a tweet that came from a UK-based fashion company called ASOS. That's A-S-O-S. And it describes itself on its website as a global fashion destination for 20-somethings. So that's why you and I haven't heard mm. of it. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's what we have no idea. That, <laughs> folks, that's why Dan did some research to figure out how to pronounce the name of the fashion company. Indeed. And in fact, there are articles written about how to pronounce the name of ASOS. And that's how I knew how to spell it or pronounce it rather. Anyway, speaking of spelling, uh, ASOS had a little bit of a problem with one of the bags that they use to uh, you know, package up their clothing to ship them. Uh, they spelled a word wrong and it says uh, ASOS, their name, and underneath it, it says discover fashion online. But instead of online, it is spelled O-N-I-L-N-E. And so, what, so just to make sure since we aren't seeing it, it kind of reads like ASOS discover fashion on <laughs> Exactly. Right? As opposed to online. 
right? So it's just, it's, it's blatantly obvious when you go to the show notes, folks at experience, this show.com, you'll be able to see the picture of the tweet. Uh, it's, it's blatantly obvious. Like this isn't something where you could get away with most people not noticing the average person that picks this up is going to be like, okay, they don't know how to spell online and they operate online. This is a problem. Exactly. And so most companies, I think, would have taken these bags and put them in the trash and just taken the loss on the expense and or you know reordered the bags. But not this company. This company actually took to Twitter, presumably before any of their millennial customers could, and posted a picture of this misspelled bag with the tweet that says, okay, so we may have printed 17,000 bags with a typo. We're calling it a limited edition. And I thought this was awesome. The tweet, of course, got almost 7,000 retweets, 41,000 plus likes, lots and lots of comments. And I thought this was just a terrific example of a brand getting out in front of a mistake rather than waiting for people to point it out themselves. What do you think, Mr. On Twitter? I, <laughs> well, first of all, thanks for uh, sending me a, a Pony Express letter with a photograph of the thing that you saw on Twitter so that I would know what we were talking about tonight. Uh, you know, I, I love this example because here's the thing. You're going to make mistakes in your business. This is going to happen. And when it does, and you notice before anyone else, you have choices. You can either have fun with it or you can reprint and kind of start from scratch. And my gut instinct is not being particularly familiar with the ASOS brand. My gut instinct is because of their target market being, you know, 20 somethings and because they are, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm projecting here that there's maybe a little more environmental consciousness. There's a little more, you know, we're real, we're authentic. It's funnier to say, hey, this is a limited edition than to go through the expense of a, re a reprint. So the to me, a takeaway within our, our overall discussion is it's okay to make mistakes. You just need to own it. And if the mistake, if owning the mistake is in alignment with your brand voice, you're good to go. You know, we talked about on a previous episode uh, what Kentucky Fried Chicken did when they ran out of chicken in the UA in the UK. They just owned it. You know, they, they apologized and they were like, you know, and that obviously affected customers more than a misspelled package. Uh, but I, I love the way that they're just owning it and saying, yep, this is what we did. Let's, let's move forward together with a limited edition bag. Yeah, I think it's appropriately snarky for that audience. And I think that that's why it got so much play on social. But it also reminds me about something that I, you know, wrote in my book about the fact that when mistakes are made and people complain on social media, it's how you react then. It's what you do next that is really, really important because people are willing to forgive mistakes. What they're not willing to do is forgive you not responding when they're having a problem with your brand. Um, and so I think that proactively getting out and admitting a mistake, whether you're an airline or a restaurant or a store or whatever it is, is a terrific approach to, I think, gaining the, the loyalty with people and having them be more forgiving of mistakes. 
So the second example I wanted to give you that, again, this arrived in my Twitter inbox within minutes of the first one was somebody who sent me... All the grammarians follow you, don't they? They must. Like they all must. the grammarians. They're, they're, that's Dan's followers on Twitter are English teachers, editors, copy editors, proofreaders, grammarians. He he rolls big in that crowd. In the, in the big grammar nerd space. Yeah, I'm there. In the big grammar nerd space. You're there. You own it. Anyway, this one was a video, and we will also post the video, a link to the video anyway, at experiencethisshow.com. And it's of a British man who has been dubbed the Grammar Vigilante of Bristol. And he goes around fixing spelling and grammar mistakes on signs of businesses. And what's really interesting is the video talks about whether this is a crime or not, because he is actually... You know, he's defacing certain signs, but he's defacing it in the name of good grammar. So in a number of examples, uh, there are wayward apostrophes, for example, and he says that apostrophes are his specialty. And he's shown in several cases either painting over or somehow covering up an incorrectly placed apostrophe on a sign. And it was hysterical, but I loved it. And I I thought it was yet a, a different example, but another example of kind of w- what you can do when there's a mistake. This guy's taking, you know, the law and, and grammar into his own hands. And I'm not saying that I... Uh, that I and, and you, you, just, you worked on that for a while, didn't I, you? You you were ready for that one. That, that law and grammar into his own hands. I like <laughs> exactly. that. Exactly. But tell me what you thought about uh, the grammar vigilante of Bristol. Well, I, immediately what comes to mind when I watch the video is, you know, kind of this quiet, you know, ominous music in the background and a voiceover that's something to the effect of crossword puzzler by day. The grammar vigilante of Bristol by night. You know, I mean, it's it's hysterical to think of a vigilante or a graffiti artist fixing grammar. But I love it. I absolutely love it because I don't know about you. I see things out in the marketplace all the time where they're using the wrong grammar. They've got the wrong spelling. My wife, Barrett, is uh, I is a pro-grammarian. Like when in doubt, I turn to her for all grammar questions. And she notices this stuff even more than I do. And it sticks out. And I look at this guy as more, less the grammar vigilante and more the grammar saint. You know, he's helping uh, to make everybody else's lives better. You know, people talk about him breaking the law. I think of this as like, you, sir, are assaulting us with your poor grammar and your missed apostrophes. You know, so we're, we're, we're taking justice into our own hands to right these wrongs and have proper grammar. And having it be in the UK, right, is just beautifully fitting for this story. I definitely agree on that. And I've kind of, to your point before, I have always been kind of a grammar nerd. Um, I will admit to getting it probably from my dad, who, by the way, Joey, has pointed out on more than one occasion that our grammar is not 100% on this show. So we got to get I am I am 100% but, aware of that. I, my wife has been kind enough to just kind of smile and nod. But I know the reality is, yeah, because here's the thing. We don't... Uh, we don't necessarily, as human beings, 
think in proper grammar mentally. Sometimes our, our mouth gets running faster than our brain and something comes out inaccurately. You know, we both spend a lot of time on stages and this happens with, you know, more frequency than I would like. And then the question becomes, do you acknowledge it or do you let it go? And like our first example, you know, I usually try to make a joke of it. I remember one time I was giving a speech and I, I actually said, you know, this was the most importantest point that we took away from here and i was and I, and it came out of my mouth i was like oh my gosh that's that's wrong in so many levels <laughs> and like so it's out there and it's a room full of lawyers right about 500 uh lawyers and i stopped and i said my mother is most proudest of me in this moment for my pro <laughs> improper grammar and the crowd went bonkers like people yeah. started laughing and cheering because it, it acknowledged that it was quote unquote live TV, right? It was a live performance where I think the examples we're talking about today are a distinction is that there's a difference between when you say it and your grammar isn't perfect and when you print it on a sign or on a bag that you distribute at your store or whatever it may be. You know, when this becomes an artifact that is out there for the public to see going forward, Take, take some time and get the grammar right. Get the spelling right. Adjust these things. Yeah. And I understand that this affects people differently. I mean, because I spent time working as an editor of my college newspaper, spelling and grammar errors jump off the page at me and punch me in the face. And everybody that's ever worked for me knows that, that when they give me a document to read or a PowerPoint that I get out my red pen, so to speak, it's not usually red for real. But, you know, I fix those mistakes because they bugged the heck out of me. No joke, true story. When I worked at Discover, there was a vendor that came in one day and on the cover slide of their presentation, they misspelled the word discover, which is Whoopsie. Yeah, not a real good start to the presentation. Um, and so here's the thing. Let's let's just go to the, some takeaways here. The first thing is, is that Proper spelling and grammar are a reflection of your brand and therefore part of the experience. And this is why it's really important. So double, triple check, quadruple check if you have to, the spelling and grammar on everything that your business produces from signs to packaging. Take that time to proofread. The second is fix mistakes as soon as they are found because they're such a poor reflection on the brand. And, you know, this is even the only, one of the only instances where I would advise uh, deleting a social media post if it has an error in it. Usually I think that's a bad practice, but um, I would delete it uh, for that reason and then repost it with the spelling uh, fix or do something like uh, the ASOS brand did and uh, get out in front of it. And that's really the third thing is that you can always turn a negative into a positive. ASOS turned a mistake into a viral fun post that became an experience for their followers and fans. And if you can do that, if you can turn a negative into a positive, you've really won. There are so many great customer experience articles to read, but who has the time? We summarize them and offer clear takeaways you can implement starting tomorrow. Enjoy this segment of CX Press, where we read the articles so you don't need to. This week's CX Press article comes to us from the Harvard Business Review or HBR.org, and it's called The Most Successful Brands Focus on Users, Not Buyers. And I thought this was really interesting and wanted to share some of the key points from this article. The first is, is that 
they really spelled out two different kinds of brands, or traditional brands and digital brands, and started talking about the differences between them. And the first finding was that traditional brands focus on positioning their brands in the minds of their customers, whereas digital brands focus on positioning their brands in the lives of their customers. Great distinction. The second point they made was that digital brands engage customers more as users than buyers. So they shift the investment from a pre-purchase promotion and sales effort to a post-purchase renewal and advocacy model. So in other words, customer experience. In other words, the first 100 days of the relationship. Things that I get super excited and passionate about because so many legacy and traditional brands are all about, well, let's just convince them and do the sale. And they don't pay any attention to what happens after the sale. So the next thing that they did was they put together what they called these brand twins, which were pairs of legacy and newcomer brands that compete in the same industry. And what was interesting is that in every case, the legacy brand rated higher on the statement is is a brand that people look up to. But the newcomer brands all rated higher on the statement makes my life easier. So a couple of these brand twins, for example, you had on the legacy side, you had Hilton and Marriott. And on the newcomer brand, you had Airbnb. On the legacy side, you have Gillette. And on the newcomer brand, you have Dollar Shave Club. On the legacy brand, you have Coca-Cola. And on the newcomer brand, you have Red Bull. And on the legacy brand, you have American Express. And on the newcomer brand, you have Venmo. Now, it isn't saying that the legacy brands are wrong and the newcomer brands are right. It's simply saying that they behave differently in their marketing and in their communications. And I think the other thing they do, which you know the article is making the point, they really set themselves up as focusing on being, uh, you know, lifestyle brand is the wrong way of of saying it. But if you're the kind of person that gets your shaving gear from Dollar Shave Club as opposed to Gillette, you're actually using the brand to say something about yourself. If you drink Red Bull instead of drinking Coca Cola, you know, you're you're going for kind of an image there. And I, I think what's interesting is how many of those really fall into that qual- that category if you will of making my life easier you know the the idea that with an airbnb you can pretty much find an airbnb in almost any neighborhood in any city that you go to uh so you can be have an easier experience because of the proximity to what you want to see as opposed to the hotel strip or the areas where the hotels usually are Yeah, I mean, I thought these brand twins were interesting because, and I know you and I are slightly different in this, is that I found myself actually on the side of the legacy brand a little bit more than on the side of the newcomer brands for a lot of these. It's not that I haven't tried or I'm not interested in the, in the newcomer brand. It's that I, I I do think that I am loyal to a lot of legacy brands for whatever reason. Um, and so, Again, this isn't about that one's right and one's wrong. It's just that this study showed that they're definitely behaving in different ways. And so it went on to explain the difference between a purchase brand and a usage brand. So as Joey described before, this idea of either focusing on on buyers and the sale or focusing on users and kind of the post-purchase experience. And so they found that the, the purchase brands emphasize promotion, obviously, because they're trying to get a sale, whereas the usage brands 
emphasize advocacy. And I thought that was really interesting because in theory, advocacy drives sales, does it not? It does. And, you know, this particular one, I love they used an example that I'm actually very familiar with living in Colorado, uh, Vail Resorts, which is a ski resort that owns uh, a bunch of different mountains around the world, but notably Vail and Breckenridge here in Colorado has a thing called the Epic Mix. And it's basically a combination of technology and social network uh, that takes gamification and performance data and photo and mix them all together into kind of this sharing app sharing experience and the the coolest thing for me of the epic mix because i've I've actually uh you know i use the epic mix when i ski their their app is it will tell you how many vertical feet or how many miles you skied in a day and at the end of a day of skiing when you're exhausted and you look back and you realize just how far you traveled it makes a lot more sense Right. Whereas prior to this, it would be like, oh, yeah, I'm tired. Maybe I'm just not in as good a shape as I used to be or I'm not as young as I used to be. And it's like, no, we, you know, did, you know, 50,000 vertical feet today, you know, or whatever it may be. And it's like, oh, that explains why I'm exhausted. So to their point, you know, kind of emphasizing that advocacy and that sharing within the user group within the, uh, you know, the community of people who support this brand, in this case, Vail Resorts, uh, is a different approach or a different perspective than focusing more on the pre-sale buyer stage. Yeah. And they went on to say that purchase brands tend to worry about what they say to customers, whereas usage brands worry about what customers say to each other. And again, just to sort of whirlwind this a little bit, even though Coke is listed as one of the legacy brands here, I think their campaign uh, in the last year or two with Diet Coke, where they put people's names on bottles, was actually more of a newcomer brand type of a campaign because it got people talking about Coke, Diet Coke to each other and sharing, you know, bottles with each other's names on it, et cetera. And so again, this is why even legacy brands can practice this. But I think the difference is, is that these newcomer brands start out this way and they start out with the idea that the way they're going to grow is by gaining advocacy and, and creating an experience that people talk about and share. Therefore, they can spend less money on traditional sales marketing. Dan, I love that. And I think that is a huge distinction that I hope all of our user or our listeners, our users, uh, actually heard in that you can choose to be a brand that behaves more like a newcomer brand. And I, I don't know this for a fact, but it wouldn't surprise me if in your example with, you know, Coca-Cola or Diet Coke, that what happened is, they were losing market share, which is true. Like the market share for soft drinks across the entire category has been declining in recent years as people become more healthy and become more conscious of what they drink. And so by creating a little more community and a little more conversation, it'd be interesting to see how that impacted their overall sales. But what I do know is it certainly impacted the number of people that I heard talking about it and the number of people at parties who would, you know, jokingly grab the can that had someone else's 
else's name and be like, oh, clearly this one's for you. I, I couldn't drink it because it has your name on it. So they did create some of that post-purchase engagement that I think is really going to be the hallmark of the successful company for the next 20 years. Yeah, so let's look at some takeaways on the most successful brands focusing on users, not buyers. I think the first one is there's not one way that is right to do business and usage brands aren't necessarily better than purchase brands, but they are focused on where consumer behavior is probably going. The second is that it's not true that all traditional brands are purchase brands and all digital companies are usage brands. Some companies are able to do both and lots of companies are able to cross over and depending on the campaign, uh, maybe go back and forth. And then the third is that this study was of B2C companies, but I do think that what we've been talking about in this segment applies very well to B2B companies as well. And we've mentioned it on the show before that a lot of B2B companies focus very heavily on the sale and then forget about their customers who are there and forget about providing the experience to them to make sure that it that they want to stay, just like with a, a B2C company. So I think really great takeaways. We, of course, will include the link to this article uh, in the show notes if you'd like to read it further uh, because it goes into some more depth and I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Sometimes the customer experience is amazing and sometimes we just want to cry. Get ready for the roller coaster ride in this edition of I Love It! I Can't Stand It! So remember when we played Love It, Can't Stand It and talked about hotel stays way back on episode 12 in November? Well, we had a bunch of listeners and other fans follow up with us on what they love and can't stand about hotels. And Joey and I love when our listeners do that. And so we put them We together. do. We love. Like, can we... So forgive me for interrupting, Dan. No, this is awesome. Part of the reason why we set this show up the way we did is to have our listeners have the chance to communicate with us. Because Dan and I listen to podcasts and, it, you know, sure, it's fun to listen to the host talk, but sometimes it's nice to have some more engagement. And we've been getting emails. We've been getting tweets. We've been getting people using the SpeakPipe widget on the website. So please, please, please keep it up. And if you've never been one of those folks that has ever, quote unquote, called into a radio show or called into a podcast, as it may be, consider experience this as being your first. I love it. Well, here we go. Let's hear from six of our favorite listeners and fans. Hey, Joey and Dan. Great show again today. Uh, commenting in regards to your love it or hate it segment for hotels. For my love it, used to travel every week to the same city and I would stay in the same hotel about 90% of the time. When I started getting there and going there frequently, the staff at the front desk would immediately know who I was and they would say, as soon as I'd walk in the door, hello, Mr. Nolfo, great to see you again. Oh, by the way, your beer and your bag of chips are already in your room. And so that was a great experience that I had with them and reasons why I wanted to stay at that hotel every time. For my hate it aspect, just occurred. I was at a conference and in the electrical outlet in the bathroom, there was about a pound of dust that was in the crevices around the electrical outlet. And for me, that was the first thing that I would see every morning and the last thing I would see every night. And I was there for three days. And so it just drove me crazier and crazier that it was not clean. The 
first morning or the second morning or even the third morning. So those are my two love it and hate it hotel edition. Hi, my name is Kara and I love it when hotels have turned down service at the end of the night because it makes the experience feel more like home. I dislike it when there are long check-in lines just to get your room number. Hi, I'm Natasha and I love it when you walk into a hotel and everything is absolutely personalized from start to finish and they have your profile and they absolutely remember everything and it's a wonderful experience. And I absolutely hate it when they, as in a hotel, just miss the boat completely on a customer service experience from concierge not being there to help you to attitudes of the employees, the front desk, not being as smiley and cheerful as they should and helpful um, to the house cleaning staff not being as courteous or timely as they need to, etc. Hi, my name is John. One thing I love about hotels is loyalty points. And one thing I can't stand about hotels is massive price increases during um, high demand. Hi, my name is Sarah. One thing I love about staying at a hotel is when I get a upgrade, a room upgrade. And one thing I can't stand about staying at a hotel is when my room isn't ready, when I'm ready to check in. Hi, my name is Stacy. One thing I love about staying at a hotel is that I don't have to clean up after myself. And one thing I can't stand about staying at a hotel is that somebody comes into my room to clean up after me. I really like those, Dan. I, I too, am one who... It kind of drives me crazy when the room isn't ready uh, or when the room isn't clean. Uh, it's, it's not that I'm uh, particularly high maintenance, but if I'm staying at a hotel, I really like the room to be clean. Uh, be, and, I, and I think that's kind of a basic request in terms of the customer experience. I don't, God, Joe, you know, I'm not so demanding. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm very high maintenance that I expect it to be clean. You know, the, the room being ready, that one's maybe a little different. And I, and I get it. I understand it's challenging for hotels to navigate uh, when people are going to check in and when they're going to check out and having the rooms ready. But some of the best hotels in in my experience are the ones that, you know, say that the room won't be ready till, you know, three o'clock on their website. But the reality is they have a bunch of rooms ready at 10 a.m. and they're ready for you and waiting. And it's it's just such a nice little bonus when that happens. Yeah. And like anything, set expectations. If you have a mobile app where you allow people to check in and choose their check-in time, then you can pretty much assume they're expecting the room to be ready at their check-in time. If the room's not going to be ready, don't offer that check-in time. That's actually happened to me. So if you notice a little something that <laughs> Yeah, voice, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a voice of experience <laughs> rather than voice of reason there. I got that. I got that. Picked up on it. Anyways, Joey said before, we love it when uh, people call in or contact us and uh, provide fodder for our show. So here's how you can do that. And we like a feedback. We like suggestions or ideas for the show. And we definitely like love it and can't stand it comments on any topic. If we haven't done the topic yet, give it to us anyway, and we will wrap it into a, uh, a future topic. So first, you can go to www.experience.com. 
click on any episode and scroll to the bottom of the page and you will see a little widget that's called SpeakPipe. And it is essentially like digital voicemail. It allows you to record a response to us, which we will hear. It comes right to our inboxes and we may use in a future episode. The second is to contact Joey or Dan on our own websites. They're really easy to remember. JoeyColeman.com and DanGingis.com. Go to either one of our websites. First of all, it's a great way to learn a little bit more about us and what we do outside of the podcast. Uh, each one of us has written a book and uh, we do speaking and blogs and other types of stuff so you can learn more there. But you also can contact either one of us at our websites. And finally, you can tweet at me. Well, you could tweet at Joey, but you may or may not you hear can. back I'm, as quickly. I'm, I'm on the Twitter, people. I am on the Twitter as well. I just am not nearly living on it the way my good friend and co-host Dan is. Yes. Yeah, so when he says on, he means that like in quotes. <laughs> exactly. I'm on the line. Okay. I'm on the Twitter. Listen in while we try to stump and surprise each other with a fantastic statistic from the worlds of customer experience and customer service. It's time to check out this number. This week's number is 65%. Joey, what do you think it means? Dan, I'm going to give you a little credit here. I think if you found yourself at Wrigley Field, standing at home plate, going up against one of the uh, fabulous pitchers that the Cubs have, I'm going to go with a 65% chance that it would be a strike that they would throw. <laughs> that's, that's my guess. <laughs> I I, I, but, but there's a good point there, right? There's a good point. That What, what I'm really saying is that I think you got a 35% chance of hitting it, which if you can hit 35%, guess what? You're going to the Hall of oh, Fame. Oh, no, 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 no. There's not a 35% chance. I thought you were going to say there's a 65% chance of me living. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. <laughs> Facing I, I a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. I think I think you could get the bat in front of the fastball. I, I, got, a, I got a lot more faith in your skills. You definitely do. Actually, 60 65% is the percentage of customer experience professionals who believe that they have a good understanding of what their customers expect of a positive experience. However, the same study showed that only 32% say they have access to all the information they need to fully understand their customers' needs. I feel like this study is just rife with things that make me want to cry, but that also make me happy because it means that those of us working in the customer experience space are never going to go hungry. Okay. First of all, how is it that barely just over half, like 65%, well, a little bit more than half, think they have a good understanding of what their customers expect. I mean, on one hand, good on you, 65 percenters, but the other 35% who have no idea what their customers want to have a positive experience. Doing when they show up to work every day. Yeah, exactly. It's that meme, right? You had one job, like seriously. And then this, I think, actually is the more insightful of the two statistics. The 32% that say they have access to all the information they need to fully understand their customers. Uh, folks, we need to have less silos in organizations. Information wants to be free. You need to set up your CRM and your data in a way that every employee who interacts with customers and even employees who don't interact with customers have the ability to see information about the customer at all times. So definitely something to work on. 
And this stat is brought to you by our friends and sponsors at Oracle CX Cloud. How does your CX stack up? There is now a two-minute assessment that you can take to find out how you compare to your peers on current proficiency in and preparedness for the future of customer experience. You'll be scored against hundreds of other CX professionals to see where you stand, and you'll get an exclusive copy of the 2018 Smarter CX Insights Report. How do you get all this? You just go to oracle.com slash CX performance. Tell them Dan and Joey sent you. Wow. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Experience This. We know there are tons of podcasts to listen to, magazines and books to read, reality TV to watch. We don't take for granted that you've decided to spend some quality time listening to the two of us. We hope you enjoyed our discussions, and if you do, we'd love to hear about it. Come on over to experiencethisshow.com and let us know what segments you enjoyed, what new segments you'd like to hear. This show is all about experience, and we want you to be part of the Experience This Show. Thanks again for your time, and we'll see you next week for more Experience This.